Welcome to the Field Goals Podcast. I'm Brandon Schultz. It is the end of the season, which means it's time for the second annual Goalies, the awards at Field Goals that uh, started up last year. Joining me to help announce some of the winners. You may have seen them already at fieldgoals.com, but Mookie Alexander and I are here to talk about it and, and add some discussion to what you've seen with the winners. And joining me is the managing editor at Field Goals, Mookie Alexander. Yeah, I'm glad to do the gullies again, and certainly a nice break from endlessly combing over Twitter to talk about Russell Wilson speculation. <laughs> you mean you don't want to just blow this off and, and talk about how Russell Wilson wants to get traded from the team, obviously, because Brandon Marshall played seven games with the team in 2018 and thinks that everything that applied in 2018 still applies now. And Russell Wilson's not getting enough help with the offensive line. So he's just he's banging the table for a trade. Yeah, that's what he must be doing. He's he's ready to he's probably waived that no trade clause already. He's he's likely demanded that all, all the gifts that he gave his offensive linemen be returned to him immediately. He's got the receipts. But yeah, it's just the, the offseason is only what officially uh, two or three days old. And it's it's the offseason started for Seattle since January. But still, you, you just know that we're in for another roller coaster roller coaster ride rather with the Seattle Seahawks. We're used to it by now. I just didn't think it would come this soon because, gosh, Mookie, we even got it on Super Bowl like the day of the Super Bowl where they're saying, oh, well, there's teams calling that are interested in wondering about trading for Russell Wilson. Well, of course they are. Of course, there's probably, you know, two dozen teams out there that want to trade for Russell Wilson. Okay, so that's obvious, not really news. And then this week, it's like uh, hearing that Russell Wilson, oh, yeah, he'd like to have a better offensive line in front of him. Six years of watching him get sacked, you know, toward the top of the league. Sure, it makes sense that he'd want protection up front. Yeah, these are, you know, statements that, I, I feel aren't news. Yes, but this is going to be one of the wackiest offseasons in general just because of all the quarterback movement we expect to see. We already got it with Stafford and Goff. So when Stafford and Goff, that trade happened, I guess that gave everybody clearance to start the roller coaster ride for the Seahawks a little earlier than planned. Well, I, it probably won't stop until Deshaun Watson at least finds a landing place. And he's probably not going to find a landing place because. Nobody's going to be able to trade the amount of draft capital that it would take to get a player of that caliber. So if they can't even make a trade for Watson happen, of course, they're not going to be able to make a trade for Wilson happen. You know, they're they're about the same level, but one's won a Super Bowl, one hasn't. Yeah, and one has never missed a game in his NFL career, and the other one has two torn ACLs dating back to college. So, you know, I love Deshaun Watson, but we got to keep that in perspective. But it's a good thing that the Texans... Uh, had already fired Bill O'Brien because I would be worried if Watson wanted out now and O'Brien was still the general manager, the trade would have already happened and Houston would not have gotten a first round pick. Yeah, they would trade him to the 49ers for a second rounder or something like that. Yeah, they, they would get a sixth round pick and, and uh, you know, their second best receiver, not Debo Samuel, but, you know, maybe who, who else is under contract <laughs> for them? Because I can, Ayuk. One of those guys. Yep. Uh, so thank thank God that that O'Brien is out of here. But, you know, there's no guarantee that Watson actually ends up out of Houston. Eventually, there could be an offer that's too irresistible for them to pass out because it's not like they have great draft capital either. But, you know, Watson, uh, you've got Stafford is already in L.A. Golf is already in Detroit. You've got um, you don't you never know who's going to be the quarterback in Indy. You don't know who will be the quarterback in Philadelphia. We think that Wentz could be headed to Chicago. So 
the, the Seahawks will not be alone on this offseason trip when it comes to quarterback speculation. No, and there will be plenty to talk about in the offseason. So let's let's go back to the season we just watched because the field goals community, they chimed in. I know you and I, we had our picks in these different categories. We can talk about that, Mookie. But let's get started with the Offensive Player of the Year, starting out right away with the category with Russell Wilson, Dwayne Brown, DK Metcalf. Those were your top three vote getters. And why don't I hand it over to you, Mookie? You announced the winner. Yeah, so last year it was so obvious that Russell Wilson was going to be the Offensive Player of the Year that I had to come up with somebody else to to win that award. Yes, it was the Offensive Player not named Russell Wilson, right? Yeah, so this year it's a little bit different. And third place was Dwayne Brown. And the fact that an offensive lineman finished in the top three given Wilson's comments earlier, um, that that tells you something. Uh, Russell Wilson was the runner-up at 24% of the vote because number one is DK Metcalf. Yes, he got 43% of the vote. And I assume that some of this is the fact that Wilson certainly had his struggles towards the second half of the season and also the big second-year leap for DK Metcalf. Like for Russell Wilson, he's had so many great seasons that statistically this might have been his best for touchdown passes, you know, overall passing attempts, but... Ultimately, Metcalf going from 58 catches, 900 yards for, I think, seven touchdowns in his rookie year to 83 catches, 1,303 yards, and 10 touchdowns in his sophomore season. He, he surpasses Steve Largent for most uh, yards in a single season by a Seahawks receiver. I, I know that there were some drops, uh, and that's something that he's really got to work on, but there's no denying that Metcalf has already elevated himself into that level where he's one of the league's best receivers. So even though you probably could have given it to Wilson just because of the fact that the first half of the season happened, um, I I don't think there's any reason to be upset about Metcalf winning it. He he was spectacular uh, and certainly was spectacular in, in certain games where he had to make the catch for Seattle to win. DK was my runner up and a big reason for this was well, if this were a most valuable player, then obviously Russell Wilson's the most valuable player on the Seahawks. That's that's easy to say. But the the production that you saw from DK Metcalf, you know, obviously you mentioned the jump. That was huge. But to me, the, the most consistent player throughout the season was Dwayne Brown, which is why I voted for him. And I, I just thought that that consistency was so important. And, and maybe that it's really hard to separate DK from Russ. And it was just to me that the fact that, and I'm a little bit partial to offensive linemen anyway, I I wanted to vote for Dwayne Brown. Yeah. I mean, Dwayne Brown, I believe only gave up one sack this season. It really depends on the, the, the metrics that you use. I think it was pro football focus that only gave him one sack allowed either them or ESPN, but whatever the case, uh, even if you wanted to comb through all of the sacks that the, the Seahawks had against them. And as usual, there were a lot of them. Very rarely could you see, a, oh, man, that was a bad bust in protection by Dwayne Brown or a bad blown block. Rarely gave up pressures. Um, and, of course, the, the one sack a lot, as I mentioned. So he, he's still going strong well into his 30s, much like Andrew Whitworth down in Los Angeles. So um, I thought he would have gar- garnered a little bit more of the vote. But, you know, we're, we're kind of in Metcalf mania at the moment because this is, this is not the first trophy that he's gotten. He's not the first Gully Award that he's gotten even in the history of this uh, ceremony. Well, he's he's a star, and I it's uh, it's easy to see that. And with the jump this year, just another great season by DK. So I I think we're going to be expecting to see him in this uh, in multiple places, even throughout these goalies. You know, he was on here multiple times, and uh, so it won't be the last time we talk about him, I'm sure. But 
Moving on to Defensive Player of the Year, and this one was close because you have Bobby Wagner, you know, the Hall, the future Hall of Famer. You have Jamal Adams, who the Seahawks traded for. He he sets an NFL record for sacks by a defensive back. So just that right there, you have the consistency of Bobby, and then you have the play of KJ Wright. And what was that crazy stat that he had uh, more passes? He had double-digit passes defensed and double-digit tackles for a loss, and he was the only player to do that this past season. So you know, when when you have that, the only player to do that, the only player in NFL history of Jamal Adams, and then you have Bobby Wagner, who's incredible. I, I can see why the vote here was so close, Mookie. Yeah, this was uh, one of the closer votes. And in fact, Adams and Wagner were separated by literally one vote. Um, Adams was third. Wagner was second, so they, they shared 23%, but there was the one-vote difference. That means Wagner's the official runner-up. But K.J. Wright, uh, in what I hope is not his last year as a Seahawk, but it, it could very well be, he is the 2020 uh, Defensive Player of the Year, as voted on by the field goals uh, fan base. So 31% is the voting percentage that he garnered, and it was well-deserved. I mean, K.J. Wright is a phenomenal player, and he's so underappreciated. I often compare Wagner and Wright to, to Brian Urlacher and Lance Briggs in Chicago, where, yeah, Urlacher's in the Hall of Fame, but Lance Briggs at his, at his peak was a really good linebacker. So Bobby Wagner's going to the Hall of Fame. K.J. Wright, almost certainly not. They'll both end up in the Seahawks' ring of honor, but K.J. Wright has been so underappreciated at, at a national level and even by our own fan base, but he's finally getting that recognition. And this year, yeah, you mentioned 11 tackles for losses, um, that's the, the, the second most of his career. He had 10 passes defense, and this is the second year row. He's had double digits uh, passes defense. He also had a one-handed interception against uh, Kirk Cousins, and that was something because the week prior against Miami, it felt like he was dropping every every pass that went his way. Um, he could have had two or three interceptions of Ryan Fitzpatrick just in that game, and he also picked up a couple of sacks. You know, he hadn't had a sack since 2016. He's not really known as a, as a pass rusher, but um, he, he really did it all, and he is still the screen whisperer. Uh, one of the few successes for the Seahawks defense all season was that when there's a screen pass and it's K in K.J. Wright's direction, that play is going to be blown up. Now I have to wonder if, you know, once we box up K.J.'s goalie for the defensive player of the year, ship it off to him, when he goes into negotiations then this offseason with John Schneider, do you think he brings that award with him and just slams that down on Schneider's desks and say, you cannot let me get out of here because I was the field goals defensive player of the year. Oh, absolutely. I mean, winning a gully is just a tremendous thing to add to your CV. I mean, KJ Wright has, has had a Super Bowl ring. He's had multiple, uh, you know, other words. He's been to the Pro Bowl once. Um, but to, to win a gully, I mean, that puts him over the top. And it's going to make negotiations really interesting for him in the offseason. But, you know, even though KJ Wright was a deserved winner, I'm wondering, considering that Jamal Adams was was just narrowly third place, if Adams had been healthy all season and gotten like double digit sacks and maybe an interception or two and wasn't, you know, ha needing some extra time to, to speed things up and, and learn the, uh, the pass coverages, would he have won? Because in his limited playing time, yes, we got on him for his struggles in pass defense, but what he did and what he was brought over to do, which is get after the quarterback and help stop the run. He did those two things exceptionally well. Yeah, and I think had he been healthy the entire season, I know with my voting in this situation, that he he did just, I don't know where I would have put him, if I would have put him right behind Bobby or not, but 
I, if I'm remembering this correctly, I, I think I voted for KJ in this particular category. And it was just because Adams did not have that full season that I, I just couldn't find myself to go ahead and pick him for this award. Yeah, I don't even remember who I picked, but um, I, I think that KJ Wright certainly uh, he was a more than than uh, justifiable selection. And obviously, the field goals readers agreed. But Adams with nine and a half sacks and just not what nine or ten games played, and, and that's yeah. that's an incredible achievement. And even towards the end of the season when they weren't splitting as much, he was still getting his sacks. So uh, just hopefully he can heal up because those are some serious injuries that he, he was dealing with towards the end. And we might see Jamal Adams shoot for double-digit sacks, like break his own record. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, th- so I am I have that expectation that I'm going to be voting for him in the future. And I, I just want to see that full season, an outstanding season by Jamal Adams. Uh, K.J. Wright, you know, getting this at the veteran point in his career. But this next award is the Rookie of the Year. See, they, they won't even have to wait until multiple seasons before they get their goalie because we have an award for Rookie of the Year. And the top three vote getters were Jordan Brooks, the first round linebacker. And you have Alton Robinson, the fifth round defensive lineman. And then you got Damian Lewis out of the third round, filling in as the starter the entire season on the offensive line. And Mookie, who was our winner? Damian Lewis by a mile, 78% of the vote. Jordan Brooks got 70%. Robinson got 4%. And then there there were 10 votes in total for DJ Dallas, Freddie Swain, and then somebody must have pressed the wrong button and clicked other because the other options are Colby Parkinson, Steven Sullivan, and Daryl Taylor. Taylor didn't even play. Sullivan barely played, and he's not even on the team anymore. And Parkinson had, what, two catches in the, against the New York Jets? So somebody was just, was goofing off there. But Damian Lewis was actually feel the, the, the staff's unanimous choice. And really, you couldn't choose anybody else. I know Jordan Brooks finished the year strongly, but he also didn't really get a lot of playing time at the start of the year, whereas Lewis... It's not very often that we see a Seahawks draft pick, you know, just go straight into the regular season as the clear cut starter. It, it almost never happens. So for Lewis to not only get into the starting lineup and they, they jettisoned DJ Fluker in the process and to play as well as he did, he, he was also on the uh, the Pro Football Writers uh, Association's all rookie team. So that's that's another feather in his cap. He's won two awards, you know, this and the gullies. And he also had a, uh, a start at center against the Arizona Cardinals when Posick was out and and, and um, Kyle Fuller was also out. So he, he actually fared quite well there. He had his, his his odd mistakes, but, you know, that's a position he hasn't played in forever, and he filled in admirably. And at right guard, it looks like the Seahawks have their long-term solution there. So Damian Lewis, hats off to him. He, he is one of the encouraging pieces as far as the Seahawks offensive line. And that's not a statement that uh, you should take lightly because encouraging in Seahawks offensive line have not gone together for about 16, 17 years. No, and that's why he really was the runaway winner with this one, because being able to play at that spot the entire year, perform at a level that was similar to DJ Fluker, and maybe even a little bit better. So, yes, a a nice thing to see from a Seahawks rookie offensive lineman. Moving on to special teams player of the year. You got Michael Dixon, you got Cody Barton, and you have Jason Myers. And, man... It's really tough when, uh, you know, your Pro Bowl special teams player of the year is in Nick Ballore isn't even listed among the, the the top three vote getters here, Mookie. Yeah, this this one wasn't even close. Um, so you look, Cody Barton 
ended up getting third place and just barely. Actually, no, I'm just double checking that I've made a mistake. Nick Ballore actually got two more votes than Cody Barton. So he did finish third. Oh, and that's yes. a weird one. I don't know how we, I don't know how we got extra votes after I closed it. But whatever the case, Nick Ballore is actually third. And I'm going to end up editing this post several days after the fact. But uh, yes, he was third, but a distant third, two percent of the vote. Michael Dixon was second and Michael Dixon was a clear snub for the all pro team. I don't really care about the Pro Bowl. And then first by a fair margin at 60, 67% was Jason Myers. And you know why? Because Jason Myers did not miss a single field goal all season. And it's not like he was just kicking chip shot field goals, you know, 24 yarder here or 31 yarder there. He made one from 60 plus. He, he was perfect on his 50 plus yard field goals. And even though he missed, I think, four extra points, this is also the highest uh, conversion rate of his career as far as extra points, because he's been in the league for as long as they moved the PAT back from the two-yard line to, what is it, the 15, I believe, or the 17. Right. So it, it was a great year for Myers, and they very rarely had big kick kick returns allowed. So Myers did his job excellently. If he struggled a bit the year before and, and certainly had his PAT woes and a couple of, of key field goals missed, this year he, he hardly put a foot wrong, no pun intended. An easy pick for me with Jason Myers as the winner here. Michael Dixon did have an outstanding season. I thought Myers, could he could have been the All-Pro uh, for the NFL, too. So I, I think what it was, the I know the uh, Falcons kicker got the Pro Bowl nod. I don't know if he also got the All-Pro nod, but then he missed a game winner right at the end of the season. So uh, that's something that Myers never did. Yeah, he didn't. Uh, Young Hui Koo, he somehow didn't make an all-pro team. They gave it to Justin Tucker almost solely off of reputation. And I thought that was incredibly unfair because Young Hui Koo also was was tremendous. He had multiple, he was perfect from 50 plus. And yeah, unfortunately, he is still a member of the Atlanta Falcons. So of course, with a chance to force overtime against the Chiefs, he misses a, a short field goal and they end up losing the game. But, you know, it, that, that shouldn't, take away from how great he was but he wasn't perfect on the year and Jason Myers was as far as field goals and uh, that that's no easy feat because we've certainly seen a lot of kickers around the league have tremendous uh, trouble making even short field goals I mean the, the Chargers certainly had uh, Michael Badgley is probably going to be out of a job soon with the number of field goals that he missed and the Jaguars must have gone through like six seven kickers this season yeah, and even Justin Tucker, you know, he missed a couple key field goals in their playoff game. So, um, yeah, I was I was very happy with Myers' performance. Definitely deserving of Special Teams Player of the Year. And we've got more awards to give away coming up next. Moving on to Offensive Play of the Year. We have David Moore's improbable touchdown versus the Patriots. That's that toe tap catch right at the pylon where he's able to get both feet in bounds and uh, get the touchdown there. You have Tyler Lockett's fourth quarter, fourth down touchdown against the Cardinals. I think that was a play that you know helped keep the Seahawks from uh, losing a second time to the Cardinals if that was in their second game, if I'm remembering right. And then you have DK Metcalf's game-winning touchdown against the Vikings and that game was one I mean holy smokes Mookie that Vikings game it just it felt like after the first half they couldn't get anything going and their ability just to come back in that game and get the win against the Vikings was huge yes it was but uh th this was by far the closest vote because there were just so many great offensive plays 
Defensive plays, yeah, that's a that's another story. Um, but offensive plays, um, the Tyler Lockett touchdown was at the Cardinals, so it was the first matchup, and that was when they were up 27-24. They could have just kicked the field goal and gone up six, but Pete Carroll, going against his, his conservative tendencies, decided, let's go for it, and it turned into a touchdown, an amazing grab by Lockett. It was his third touchdown of the game, threw up 34-24, and uh, I like to think that the game ended there. Sadly, it didn't. <laughs> Um, so that actually got runner-up spot. It got runner-up spot by one vote. Here we are again with the one vote over David Moore and his toe-tap touchdown against the Patriots. That finished in third, and it actually finished uh, ahead of DK Metcalf's long touchdown against the Patriots, which finished fourth. So, you know, two offensive plays, two tremendous touchdowns just in that Patriots game. But first place, DK Metcalf's game winner against the Minnesota Vikings. That's another fourth down play. And that one, unlike the, the locket catch against the Cardinals, this is, if you don't come up with a touchdown here, the game is over. Seattle loses its unbeaten record sooner than they actually did. And, it, and in some ways, it probably ended Minnesota's season when you look at how the playoff picture uh, turned out for Minnesota. But great throw by Wilson. Incredible diving catch by Metcalf in traffic in the rain. Right. And as much as we've gotten on Metcalf for his drops, like that's the type of catch that he really didn't make all that much in his rookie year. It shows you his progression into his second season. And that was just, that was perfection. And to me, it, it was the, the best play of the year just because of the, the elation that we all had at the time. Like it, it was looking so bleak against Minnesota. And then suddenly they, they got the lead and then they lose the lead. And then Wilson throws the interception. They get the stop. Uh, against the Vikings on, while, while they're on defense. So to cap off a 90-something yard drive with a Metcalf touchdown, it was also fitting because Metcalf had the long catch on fourth down earlier in that drive to keep the drive alive. So, yeah, th this, was, uh, this was a tough one because David Moore's touchdown statistically was the least probable if you're into completion probability. But in terms of importance and the fact that this won the game with just seconds left, yeah, I can see why Metcalf's game-winning touchdown deserved a gully. I, I can see why it got the edge. I think personally I voted for the David Moore touchdown just because uh, the the incredible footwork for him to get both feet in bounds on that particular catch, it, it won me over. And obviously I couldn't even remember what game that Tyler Lockett catch was in, so I, I can't even picture that play in my mind for whatever reason. But for the degree of difficulty for that DK Metcalf catch, like you said, in the rain, to, to help seal that comeback that, you know, it just looked like an improbable victory against the Vikings. I, I can definitely see why the majority of Seahawks fans picked that one. Yep. But it was a, a very small percentage. I mean, this was the, this is the last close vote that you're going to get. The previous one would have been a, a defensive player of the year, but Metcalf had so many great plays himself that I could have just made a DK Metcalf player of the year, but don't worry. He's not done with his, his gullies collection. <laughs> No, he has not. And this was part of the controversy, Moki, that for the defensive play of the year, that DK Metcalf was even in this category because, and I don't even know if you need an offensive play or defensive play. When I think of the play of the year, I think of the DK Metcalf play of him running down Buda Baker from behind to deny that Cardinals touchdown. The, the other couple plays on this list I, you kind of gave it away that there aren't any more close ones. So I, I'm already offering up the winner here that the defensive player of the year went to DK Metcalf. But you have Cam Newton getting stopped on the goal line at the end of that game against the Patriots, that goal line stand. You have the goal line stand against the Rams where Jordan Brooks 
was in on that tackle on Malcolm Brown on fourth and goal. And so for the defensive play of the year, Mookie, to go to an offensive player and DK Metcalf after Russell Wilson threw an interception, uh, I know you've you've felt the heat and uh, the, and some of the vitriol behind people that you would dare put this play even in the conversation. Yeah, I know this is quite controversial because technically this is not a defensive play. But, you know, it's my award show. Take it up with the committee. I am the committee. So you can go bombard my email with with all sorts of hate mail. I mean, I'm used to that used to that used to that anyway. God, I can't talk. <laughs> but anyway, so you've got Jordan Brooks finishing third. And really, you could have combined this with the Jamal Adams tackle of Daryl Henderson a couple of plays prior. Um, but I felt that the Brooks stop was bigger in the sense that they still could have scored anyway. And right. Adams's tackle would have been moot. But the Cam Newton stop. Uh, by a host of Seahawks. So it was Bobby Wagner, it was Lano Hill. LJ it Collier. LJ, LJ Collier. I mean, they they were all in to stop what is normally an automatic play. Mm-hmm. Like for, for pure defensive play, for a play involving the Seahawks defense and Seahawks defense only, this was clearly the play of the year because that was, again, a, a big win in, in the grand scheme of things, knowing that Seattle didn't run away with the NFC West, but also just to beat New England because New England ran the ball at the one-yard line with the obvious running play and they got stuffed. So, you know, <laughs> I, I think that there are some Seahawks fans who certainly love that sort of outcome. Uh, I should mention that the other um, honorable mentions here, Carlos Dunlap sacking Kyler Murray on fourth down in the Cardinals rematch. That got fourth place, and then fifth place was KJ Wright's one-handed interception against the Vikings. But 51% of the vote went to DK's chase down at Buda Baker against Arizona. And as far as I'm concerned, DK Metcalf went from offense to defense the moment that Buda Baker had the ball. So the only thing that he could have done to add to that is if he had forced um, Buda Baker to fumble and then it went out of the end zone or something, and then that becomes a turnover. I mean, I think we've seen that before, not necessarily in a Seahawks game, but uh, you know, we've seen some guys get chased down at the goal line, the ball's knocked out of their hands, and it turns out to be a turnover. So this was DK Metcalf preventing a touchdown he is preventing a touchdown therefore he is playing defense you're not playing offense by preventing a touchdown and it was just one of the most amazing plays you'll ever see regardless of who you root for uh, and regardless of whether it's offensive play or defensive play to see Buda Baker who's a pretty fast guy and a really talented player have clear sailing to race past Russell Wilson you would think there's no way that anybody can catch up to him and then Metcalf with a tremendous hustle play and I think it was important for Metcalf to make that play because it was only, what, three weeks prior that we were on him for the fact that he had a touchdown against Dallas, gift wrap for him, and then he hot-dogged it and then fumbled at the one-yard line. So to see that is also great redemption for Metcalf in a way. Yeah, and this is one of those plays that you're going to see played over and over again. To me, this was the play of the season, offense or defense, whatever you want to call it. I thought you made a great case for it being defensive play of the year and this is the only way Mookie that you could really stack the deck to get DK Metcalf three different goalies yeah I mean this is uh he's hit the the gully triple crown if you will because I think he's in every category and he won something uh just about everywhere He, he was in offensive player of the year he won that got offensive play of the year and defensive play of the year. So it's only fair that you might as well call DK Metcalf the Seahawk of the year if you're going to go that far. I didn't even have that award. So with with Metcalf, I should also note that because of his tackle, 
the Cardinals did not score a touchdown on that ensuing drive. The, the Seahawks made a defensive stand. So right. Metcalf saved a touchdown, and then the defense did their job. But the defense doesn't get to do their job, and Metcalf doesn't make that tackle. Yeah, an incredible play. And you said Buda Baker is pretty fast. Baker was a track athlete, so you know, not just pretty fast. I mean, dude is legit fast, and still DK Metcalf able to run him down. Yeah, it's right up there. Just thinking about NFL plays in general. Um, when Champ Bailey picked off Tom Brady in that playoff game in New England and Denver, and then Ben Watson is not even in the frame, and he's a tight end, runs down Champ and then knocks the ball free just short of the end zone. It ends up not being a touchback because it was knocked out like at the one or two yard line. But that is right up there for one of the greatest chase downs I've ever seen. Moving on to special teams play of the year. You've got Jason Myers kicking a 61 yard field goal against the Rams. You have Cody Barton, a big hit on special teams against the 49ers. Dante Pettis fumbling the football. And you got Ryan Neal in there too, blocking a punt. That led to a safety. It should have been a touchdown against the Giants, but DJ Dallas not able to come up with the football in the end zone. Obviously, I'm still thinking about that. But Mookie, who is the winner? Yeah, it's uh, another runaway. Jason Myers is by far your 2020 Special Teams Play of the Year uh, victor. He gets the gully for a 61-yarder franchise record. Uh, second place, just narrowly, was Cody Barton's big hit on Dante Pettis. Literally, literally, Dante Pettis' last play as a 49er, and then they cut him. Mm. And uh, it, it led to a touchdown, so that broke the game open, and Seattle never really looked back against San Francisco. The Neal block punt was third place, and if that had been a touchdown, I bet you it would have actually overtaken Barton's big hit because in all likelihood, Seattle might win that game instead of lose it against the Giants. And then and they win also, the conference, and they're 13-3. and three. Yeah, you know, on one hand, they could have gotten the number one seed. On the other hand, there's nothing that I saw from that Seahawks offense to make me think they'd have been competitive with Tampa Bay. So maybe it was in our best interest not to have Tom Brady go into Lumen Field and end Seattle season. Maybe things work out for a reason. Uh, and then another option here that finished a distant fourth, Marquise Blair had forced a fumble on a successful uh, fake punt against Atlanta on opening day. Right. So if you don't remember that play, the Falcons went for a fake punt. They got the first down and then fumbled. Marquise Blair stripped uh, whoever was uh, running the ball for Atlanta. And then Freddie Swain recovered it. And the Seahawks scored a touchdown. And that turned a 21-12 game into 28-12. And Atlanta never really got back into things. So uh, I think that could have garnered more votes if uh, there was a lot more riding on the line. But Jason Myers, I think it just was the, the high point of a tremendous season because if you were watching that game, it was a miserable experience in that first Rams game. You would think, why would you kick a field goal that long? Like, just try and get one more play going, you know, do a Hail Mary something. Myers kicking from 61, highly likely to miss. But he drilled that thing. It had room to spare. And hopefully it doesn't give Pete Carroll a sense of confidence that if it's 50-plus, you just drop Myers out all the time instead of go for it. But it, it was just cool to see a 60-plus yard field goal because even though kickers are better than ever, they're more more proficient than ever at kicking long field goals and making them 60 plus is still really difficult to do. Yeah. Well, obviously it didn't give them enough confidence for it was late in the season when I think they punted when they had an opportunity at kicking a 53 or 54 yard field goal at home. So yeah, didn't give them enough confidence and, may, and maybe he just wanted Myers to keep his streak alive for the season. And so maybe, maybe we'll just say that about Pete Carroll that, uh, 
that he knew that he had that streak locked up. He didn't want to chance it. And special teams play of the year. It goes to Jason Myers for that 61 yard franchise record, which moves us on to the final award of the goalies this season. The win of the year, the best victory for the Seahawks this season. You had the the game against the Rams to clinch the NFC West title. You had the game against the Vikings, 27 to 26 victory that we already talk, talked about, just an improbable victory. And then you had the 28 to 21 win over the Cardinals that ended a three game losing streak. So that was an important win. Not only that, it was also a divisional win. And normally you see the Cardinals coming up to Seattle and, and getting the win here. So it was an important game for the team. And Mookie, let's announce the winner. Yes. Uh, well, before I do that, just a couple of others that didn't make the top three. The win against the Patriots that only got 10% of the votes. And then the win against the Cowboys, which uh, was an absolutely crazy game that Seattle should have put away much sooner. But it, it only got 2% of the votes. But, you know, Dallas was clearly not a good team, even when healthy. New England, also not a good team, but it's always good to beat New England. So your top three, we had a tie for real. So there were a couple other instances earlier uh, that we had identical percentages. But if you broke it down into hundreds for thousands, then there would be a separation. So equal number of votes for the Vikings and Cardinals wins. Um, and if you notice, a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, the top plays that we mentioned happened in the first half of the season. So the fact that the Cardinals game even got that many votes in the second half of the season is, is quite pleasant to see. Uh, but the win of the year did happen in the second half of the season, and it was the NFC West clinching victory against the Los Angeles Rams, 48% of the vote. Now, full disclosure, I didn't vote for this as win of the year, even though I love beating the Rams and I'm sick of losing to them and I'm really just not wanting to ever replay the playoff game. I actually voted for the Cardinals win hmm. because Seattle really could have gone off the rails if they had lost the third straight game. It certainly changed Arizona's season. Because yeah. if they had beaten uh, Seattle again, they would have had the tiebreaker and Seattle would have been in third place and really an uphill battle just, just to win the division. And instead, Seattle not only gets the win on a short turnaround after such a dismal showing against the Rams, but the Cardinals just collapse straight out of the playoffs. They go from six and three all the way to eight and eight. And the Seahawks just get on a nice, nice enough run that they only lose one game the rest of the regular season. But I more than understand the win against the Rams because it's Seattle's first division title since 2016. It's the Rams. We're tired of losing to them. You know, dropping two out of three still really stings. But the one win was so sweet in the moment because this was Seattle's big moment. Like every year they seem to have this one signature performance against a team that eventually makes a deep playoff run. And this year we didn't really have that because the Rams got knocked out in the divisional round anyway. But it was one of the more complete showings. Now, the first half... The offense was a mess, but the defense really stepped up. And it was a different feeling because whenever they have played the Rams uh, in, in other seasons, Sean McVay basically did whatever he wanted against Pete Carroll's defenses. It was open season. So this year in the rematch, no touchdowns allowed. Jared Goff looks totally lost, and, and McVay is already just thinking about how Matthew Stafford can make the offense better. <laughs> and then in the second half, Russell Wilson – gets that big completion to David Moore. And in hindsight, I'm wondering if that should have been also a candidate for offensive play of the year. And then he gets the rushing touchdown. You get the goal line stop to keep the game at 13 to six. And even at 13 to nine, the clear drive of the year, if I wanted to include that as a gullies category, maybe I will next year. 
to, to burn off as much time as they did late in the fourth quarter and get a third down touchdown to Jacob Hollister um, to, to essentially be the dagger to, to clinch the division. It, you you got to really love that. And if only there were fans, like even even at a reduced capacity, just the, the roar and, and elation and, and just all the enthusiasm seeing the Seahawks win the division against their hated rivals uh, compared to what happened last year, it would have been so sweet because we know what happened against the Niners in week 17. This is a similar scenario. And as it turned out, the Rams would have won the division had they beaten Seattle. So, yep, 20 to nine is your runaway winner as the last goalie's entrance. And I have no issue with anybody who voted for, for the Rams over the Cardinals. Well, I did vote for the Rams in this because for me, it was tough to find a game where it was complete dominance other than the game against the Jets. And so that wasn't even in here because I went over the Jets. I, I just, while you could point to that and say, okay, it was the the most complete performance, that's a team that you're supposed to beat. So it's uh, it's just not that impressive. It would be, I, I think it would be disrespectful to even put it in the category with those other five nominees. So um, it's, and other than that though, to find a complete game where the offense was performing well, the defense performing well, and special teams, you know, all, all those things performing together, I, I think it has to be the Rams game, especially for the defensive performance that, you know, having not stopped, you know, I, I know we joke about it being Jared Goff, and um, but the fact was, is Pete Carroll had not been able to find a way to stop that offense. Really, there hasn't been a time where they've held them in single digits for, in terms of points. So for the defense to be able to do that, for the offense to do just enough against that Rams defense that was number one in the NFL this year. And then for, for special teams, I, I know it wasn't maybe their best performance, but um, it didn't hold them back in this particular game. So that was to me, it was the most well-rounded and not only that it was to get the division title. Yes. And you know, what's surprising is the fact that this was the runaway win of the year and Jacob Hollister's touchdown in the offensive play of the year category, it finished a distant fifth. I, I love that play to, to Hollister because, one, he was the one who came up a yard short against San Francisco. Right. So this was kind of his, his, not revenge moment, but this is your second chance at winning the division. And he pulled it off. And it was a, such a well-designed play. Like, we've seen them run that play many times before or some variation of it. And usually it's not with the tight end. It's with Doug Baldwin and yesteryear or sometimes Tyler Lockett. So it was a great pass by Wilson. Hollister is wide open and he hangs on because their defenders closing in on him. And it was just, it, everybody knew at the time that was game set and match. And it would only take a crazy outcome for them to blow an 11 point lead over the last 250 or so. But yeah, you know, it was the most complete defensive performance of the season. That's for sure. I voted for the Cardinals because I felt that the offense had one of its better complete joins in that they didn't turn the ball over. They had an efficient passing game without being explosive. And the running game also had one of its better days without Chris Carson. It was Carlos Hyde leading the attack. But, you know, against the Rams, to hold them to nine when the only other good defensive display they've ever had against Sean McVay was the very first time they met. I think it was like 16 to 10. And the oh, Rams right. had it. Yeah, they had five turnovers that day. And the Seahawks didn't capitalize on any of them with a touchdown. So they were fortunate to win it because I think it was Cooper Cup who dropped a game-winning touchdown. Yeah, hit him in the hands second. in the end zone. Yeah, and, and you bank you would bank on Cooper Cup catching just about anything. But this time around, they kind of dominated the Rams. I think 20-9 to flattered Los Angeles, 
because there were a couple of, of fluky, bouncy plays that didn't go Seattle's way. Like there was the fumble on the punt return that Seattle could have recovered and they didn't. And the Rams kicked a field goal. You know, there was the unfortunate roughing the punter. It could have been just as easily a block punt by Ryan Neal. So to just take the lead on the Rams once they did and never look back and, and just show themselves to be the better team that day. Yeah, maybe in hindsight, I should have voted for this win over the Rams as the win of the year. It's just a shame that uh, they had to play another game. And I can see why you would do that, Mookie, because you just, yeah, we, we're done talking about the Rams now. I, I'm over it. Yeah, like apparently 20 wasn't enough uh, in the rematch, in the trilogy. <laughs> so, But 20 was enough to win this game. And it, it was it was just great to see Sean McVay fail. Like, and now we get to have Shane Waldron come over as the offensive coordinator. So this is, this is truly, instead of if you can't beat him, join him. It's if you can't beat him, recruit them. So where do you come out now? Uh, I, maybe I'm not done talking about the Rams, but Matt Stafford going to the Rams. Is this concerning for you? Um, it is and it isn't. I think Stafford's reputation as some utterly otherworldly quarterback has, has really grown in stature over the last several weeks. Um, but he's, he's been in a bad situation in Detroit in the sense that he's playing in Detroit. And that's just a cursed franchise. He's clearly the best quarterback that they've ever had. Um, but, uh, you know, with the Rams jettisoning Goff and sending him to Detroit and getting Stafford, he's clearly a better quarterback than Goff has ever been. He's got a better arm. Um, he can be a bit reckless at times. His, his mobility is certainly not anything special, but he is certainly one to take more chances. He could be absolutely lethal off of play action. He'll finally have a running game, we assume, and a better offensive line to have at his disposal. And the fact that the Rams defense, even though they got some free agents um, hitting the market soon, we assume that they're still going to be, just because of Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey, a top 10 unit at the very least. So I, I am concerned to some degree, but I would be more concerned that the 49ers find a better quarterback than Jimmy Garoppolo, because as good as the Rams are, I think that the 49ers are still clearly the most talented roster in the NFC West. So if they find an upgrade from Garoppolo, God forbid it's not Deshaun Watson, then that would be cause for concern because the Niners were, let's be honest, extremely snake bitten with injuries. And the Seahawks were fortunate that the Niners just had too many injuries to overcome. And they still fielded a pretty competitive team down to their third and fourth stringers. So right. they got a ton of free agents to deal with. But if they get a better QB than Jimmy G, then watch out. This is going to be a really difficult offseason because it's hard to see where Seattle gets better with their limited cap space and their limited draft capital. Like they have to make some big moves and they don't really have a lot to to work with. Oh, well, we know that Russell Wilson, since he's so concerned about the offensive line, he's just going to take a 75% pay cut, move that back into salary cap space so John Schneider can go out and get the offensive lineman that he wants. Yeah, anybody who thinks that the Seahawks are going to go get Corey Lindsley at center, I got some news for you as far as the history of Seattle's free agent signings. <laughs> right. You better go way down the list. Like uh, you, you expect a lot of one-year for $3 million signings for the for this free agency. And that's partly because of the way Seattle's salary cap is. And the other part is that's just how John Schneider operates. But yes, it is time to get a better offensive line. When I, when I mean better offensive line, a better pass-protecting line. The, the best offensive lineman that they can find should be ones who should be the type of offensive linemen who are great pass blockers, good to great, over run blocking. You've got to prioritize pass blocking now because it's just too obvious how much worse Seattle's offensive line is 
compared to, say, Tampa Bay or a healthy Kansas City or Green Bay. They're just not in that class. And it has been a really long time since the Seahawks have, have had the pleasure of watching a great offensive line. And for some Seahawks fans, they've literally never seen it because they weren't fans at the time when Walter Jones and Steve Hutchinson and Robbie Tobeck were three-fifths of that 2005 starting line. I mean, I'll never see a better offensive line than that in Seahawks history. So I'm not expecting a 2005 Redux. I'm not expecting a Walter Jones um, clone at left tackle, although that would be ideal. But we, we just can't go every year with a mixture of Wilson taking bad sacks because he's holding on to the ball too long and also too many plays where there's just instant pressure given up. Yeah, going to be tough to get another Walter Jones when you aren't picking in the top five or really picking in the first round hardly ever at all. So, um, yeah, I, I would like to see more moves on the offensive line, just not the $8 million to Luke Jokel type moves. Yeah, that's the problem. Seattle has invested in its offensive line. They're just not invested well. I mean, this is uh, it's been a long time since the Seahawks made just a home run of the pick. And uh, hopefully Damian Lewis is a home run right now. I'd say he's like an, an extra base hit at the moment. So you, you look at the Seahawks draft history, and it's just not very good. They've drafted offensive linemen. They've drafted James Carpenter and Jermaine Effetti in the first round. And I think we know how, how that turned out. Um, Posick is a free agent, and there's no guarantee he gets resigned. One of their best offensive linemen over the last few years, post-Russell Okung, um, as far as draft picks or just regular undrafted free agents, is George Fant, and he's over with the New York Jets, and apparently he's playing quite well for them. Yes, they they have been happy with Fant this year, and even considering his salary, so that's good for him. Um, I I'm also somewhat happy with Brandon Shell, but obviously uh, it not like in such an upgrade that you. I mean, that's where we're at, Mookie. Is that Brandon Shell might be their most successful free agent acquisition because obviously they got Dwayne Brown in a trade and yeah that might be the top one in terms of offensive line yeah like your next best right tackle in in Seahawks history with Russell Wilson is is Breno Giacomini and like half of that is because he was able to generate 15-yard penalties on the opposition uh-huh. I mean certainly not for his blocking uh, but Seattle I guess statistically they've never really been in the top 10 in terms of, of pass blocking grading and the other top quarterbacks in the league, typically, they're, they're at least in the top half. Seattle is very rarely even in that category. They're, they're more often in the very bottom. And what we can't have is a repeat of 2016 when they intentionally gave us Bradley Sal and Jamarcus Webb in the starting lineup. Oof, like, yeah. That cannot happen ever again. And if it does, then, yeah, there's every reason for Russell Wilson to be angry. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, he can be angry. I'll be angry. Uh, the entire fan base, if if they don't see better protection for Russell Wilson, uh, they're going to be angry too. So Mookie Alexander, managing editor at Field Goals. Thanks for joining to recap the goalies. Anything coming up this week on Field Goals that, that you need to promote here? Well, uh, I'm in the middle of working on the Super Bowl edition of Enemy Reaction. And even though it was an absolute dud of a game, it was certainly a great performance by Tampa Bay. And we get to see how do Chiefs fans feel after losing the Super Bowl one year after winning it. I mean, we were in a similar position to have a repeat and then Tom Brady got in the way, but this one is totally different because instead of a heartbreaking loss, it's just domination from start to finish. And I got to say, it's not 43 to 8, but what the Buccaneers pulled off on Sunday had a lot of 43 to 8 in it. It did. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll be looking for that. Always like the enemy reaction 
And I am kind of curious just to hear a little bit from that Chiefs fan base about how they reacted to that particular game. And, and maybe it's because, you know, we can all we're all in the club now of uh, getting beat by Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. <laughs> yes. Welcome to the club, Kansas City. Well, thanks, Mookie, for coming on. Appreciate those of you listening. Subscribe to the show if you haven't already. SBNation.com slash NFL podcasts. I will be back later this week. We are going to be talking draft with EJ Snyder of Windy City Gridiron. So stay tuned for that. And until then, go Hawks. Go Hawks.